You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we come to it with expectant hearts because we know that if we are to hear from you today, it is going to be through your word. We can trust it, and we can look to it, and we can ask that you would be here to minister that truth to your people and give us an appreciation for our Savior and for your grace and for what you have done in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If uh, I were to go back in a time machine to the year 35 or 36 A.D., and I were given the task of choosing out of the mass of humanity an apostle to the Gentiles, somebody to send to the Gentiles with the gospel message, I would not have chosen Saul of Tarsus. Not without the benefit of hindsight, and of course a sovereign approach to it, but just from my own perspective, from the human perspective, from the flesh, as an individual looking at everybody available to be an apostle to the Gentiles, I would not have chosen Saul of Tarsus. In fact, I'm not sure that I would have even chosen a Jew. How much sense does that make? to take a Jew and send them to Gentiles. I would have chosen a Gentile convert. I would have chosen maybe Cornelius or some other, the Ethiopian eunuch or some Gentile that got saved in the early church and made them an apostle. I wouldn't have chosen a Jew. But if I had to choose a Jew, and really if I were to choose a a Jew as an apostle to the Gentiles, you know who I would have chosen? I would have chosen Philip. You know why Philip? Do you remember Philip in Acts chapter 6? He was one of the original deacons, the seven that were chosen to minister to the Hellenistic Jews. I mean, there was a strife in the early church between the the orthodox, sort of conservative, uh, staunch Jewish Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. And the Hellenistic Jews were more Greek-thinking, more progressive, more Greek and Gentile in their culture and in their thoughts. And, And they felt that they were being neglected in the early church in the serving of the food, the daily administration of the food. And so... The elders of the church at that time, which were the apostles, said, you know, it's not good for us to spend our time doing this. We need to instead appoint some men who are filled with the Spirit of God, respected by the people who have the ability to do this and allow them to serve. And Philip was one of those that were chosen for that task. And so one of Philip's first recorded ministries is serving food to Hellenistic or Gentile-thinking Jews. They were Jews who were more Greek in their thinking and culture, and Philip was able to minister to them. And that was not all of Philip's cutting-edge ministry because after Saul of Tarsus began to persecute the church, do you remember what Philip did? He went down into Samaria and began to preach the gospel to whom? The Samaritans, who were half-Jew, half-Gentile. They were half-breeds, intermixed, intermingled people. And they hated the Jews, and the strict, full-blooded Jews hated the Samaritans because they were half-breeds. Well, Philip went right down in there and began to share the gospel with them. An orthodox, strict, uh, traditional, separatist, elitist-type Jew of the day would never have gone into Samaria to share the gospel with the Samaritans because, quite frankly, there would have been theological questions as to whether or not a Samaritan could actually ever be saved. But not Philip. Philip went right down in there to minister to half-Jew, half-Samaritan, the Gentiles. Then he went beyond that, and the Spirit of God led him out into the desert to share Christ with whom? An Ethiopian eunuch, a full-blooded Gentile, who was a proselyte to Judaism. He was religiously a Jew, but by blood he was a Gentile. 
By blood a Gentile, by belief he was Jewish. And he had gone up to Jerusalem to worship, riding back on his chariot with the prophet Isaiah out in his lap, reading it, not able to understand who it was that Isaiah was speaking of. And the Spirit of God, God brought Philip along to minister to a Gentile. And then after that, in Acts chapter 21, we read that Philip settled down in Caesarea. Do you know what the thing about Caesarea was? It was a Gentile city. At least as considered by the Jews, it was built by a Gentile occupied by Gentiles. The Romans were there. The Roman military was there. The Roman government was seated there. Philip went there. He settled down and that's where he became known as Philip the Evangelist. You know whom I would have chosen to be an apostle to the Gentiles? I would have chosen Philip. Why? Because from the very beginning he was open to that kind of a ministry. You know whom I would not have chosen? I would have not have chosen a separatistic, strict, elitist type Jew who was raised according to the strictest sect of their religion who had the same view of Gentiles that was held by all of the Pharisees and the strict Jews of the day. You know how they viewed Gentiles? They viewed Gentiles as simply fuel for the fires of hell. That's how Jews viewed Gentiles. Wouldn't touch Gentile food. Would not eat food that was prepared by a Gentile. Would not go into a Gentile home. Wouldn't touch things that had been touched by Gentiles because they were unclean. Would not address a Gentile unless absolutely necessary. They were unclean in every way. And I would never have chosen somebody who viewed his Jewish pedigree as something that gave him righteousness before God, who viewed Gentiles as fuel for the fires of hell. I would not have chose that individual and said, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. But I would have made a wrong choice. You know who the best choice for Apostle of the Gentile was? Saul of Tarsus. Who would have thought that? You would never have desired that. You would have never chosen him to be an Apostle to the Gentiles. But that's precisely what God did. That's precisely whom God chose. And I think that it must have shocked Saul of Tarsus to hear those words, I am sending you to the Gentiles. Me? To the Gentiles? Of all the ministries that I could be given, I would be best suited to be a missionary to the Jews but to send me to the Gentiles. And that's where Jesus sent him. And we are looking now in Acts chapter 26 at just when that was that the Lord Jesus gave that commission to Paul. It happened on the road to Damascus. We looked at verses 16 and 17, and we saw how it is that the Lord described the ministry as calling to Paul as one of service, first of all, and second, then of suffering. And that brings us to verse 18. I want you to read verse 18 with me. Uh, Verse 17, actually, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Look at verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now, in verse 18, the Apostle Paul is not given the gospel message. Verse 18 is a key verse because it describes what was going to happen as a result of Paul's ministry. I am sending you to the Gentiles and to the Jews and to the Gentiles in order that you, through the preaching of this message, might accomplish this. To open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light, from the kingdom of or the dominion of Satan to God, to receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now beginning in verse 18, The Lord Jesus speaking to the Apostle Paul and then Paul relaying this to Agrippa jumps right off into some very deep theological subjects. In verse 18, we have a description not of what the Gospel is, but listen, we have a description of what the Gospel does. Paul in Galatians chapter 1 says, When it pleased God who set me apart even from my mother's womb to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him 
among the Gentiles. That's what Jesus is doing. He's telling the Apostle Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles with a message, and here is what that message is going to do. So in verse 18, we have given to us four fundamental changes that are made in the child of God that the Gospel brings. And then we have four fundamental blessings that are given to the child of God by the message of the Gospel. So today we're going to look at these four, we're going to start looking at these four fundamental changes and these four fundamental blessings. So let's begin at the beginning of verse 18 and look at what these four fundamental changes are. You see them listed out there. The first one is the, the gospel message brings a change in illumination. A change in illumination. Look what Jesus says. To open their eyes so that they might turn. He's going to open their eyes. Now, is Jesus saying that all of us are physically blind? That's not what he's saying, is it? What kind of blindness is Jesus talking about there? It's a spiritual blindness. Now, that phrase, to open their eyes, communicates a tremendous amount about what is true of a fallen, unsaved, unregenerate individual who is in their sin. And here is the fundamental problem with mankind. They're blind. They can't see. Do you remember when you finally came to an understanding of the gospel truth and you said to yourself, how could I be so what? Blind. For so long, suddenly you're able to see. Suddenly you're able to see the difference between goodness and, 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 and sin and righteousness and unrighteousness and holiness and wickedness, light and darkness, the Word of God, truth and error. You're able to discern all of that. And suddenly when the Gospel comes, you have this change of illumination. Your eyes have been opened. And you say to yourself, how can I be so blind for so long? How can I walk in darkness for so long? How could I love unrighteousness for so long when it was all there right in front of me? And maybe you heard it like me a hundred times before you ever trusted Christ. But suddenly when the lights came on, your eyes were opened and there was a change of illumination and you said to yourself, how could I have missed this? Where was this all my life? Maybe you were five or six or seven years old when you trusted Christ. Or maybe you were 40 or 50 or 60 years old when you trusted Christ. But suddenly the light came on and you had a change of illumination. Problem with fundamental problem with mankind, friends, is that we are in darkness and we are blind without Christ. And that blindness manifests itself in a lot of ways. It manifests itself in our morals because mankind is morally blind. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, and I want you to keep in mind, if you're sitting here this morning and you've never trusted Christ for salvation, you've never repented of your sin and turned to Him, what I'm about to read to you describes you. Ephesians chapter 4, being darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. The mind is darkened. The understanding is darkened. When Adam sinned, he plunged his whole race into darkness and we lost spiritual sight. And now we're blind. All of us are blind without Christ. Every human being born is born spiritually blind unable to discern light, unable to discern truth, unable to know the truth, and unable to see righteousness and holiness and the difference between that and wickedness. Born spiritually blind. Darkened in their understanding that manifests itself in the unsaved individual in that they pursue their unrighteousness, their wickedness, and their impurity with greed. Have you ever noticed how an unregenerate individual has a lust that is almost insatiable? It cannot be quenched. A lust and a drive, whether it is for money or for pleasure, it is an insatiable lust. 
And it cannot be cured, and it cannot be satiated, it cannot be even wetted. That's just a drive, insatiably. That is because they are morally darkened in their understanding. And there is a moral darkness that exists, and they are blind to their morality. This explains why it is. I, I should say this. As fallen men, we have the inability to rightly discern moral categories. They become blurred. Instinctively, Paul says, we know what is right, we know what is wrong, but we begin to blur those categories. And after a while, with the darkening of the mind and the suppressing of truth, those categories become so blurred that morally we become so mixed up and so darkened that we pursue our sensuality with greediness. And that explains why it is that a culture or a person can spend millions of dollars to save a whale while aborting millions of babies every year. Ever wonder how that is possible? You ever wonder how it is possible that somebody could be so insatiably greedy for pleasure, for their lusts of their flesh, to indulge the desires of their flesh, and do so almost without ever being satisfied? It's because they're morally uh, morally blind. Ever wonder how it is that somebody can defend a mass murderer like Saddam Hussein and lament the fact that he was put to death while they defend a mother who has strapped three of her children into a car and driven it off a bridge into water and drowned them so that she could be free to be with her lover. And we defend that. People will defend that. And people will defend Saddam Hussein. How is that possible? Because they're morally blind. It's not only a moral blindness, friends. It's an intellectual blindness. Romans chapter 1 says that mankind suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, and even though he knows God, he does not honor him as God, but exchanges the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like the four-footed beast, creeping things, and birds of the air, and even men. It's an intellectual blindness. Mankind takes the truth that he knows, and he suppresses it, and it's willful blindness. And so here's what we do. Here's what, we take um, big satellite dishes, and we aim them out into space. It's called SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So we aim these massive satellite dishes out into space to monitor all of the static and all of the signals and all of the radioactive activity and all of the frequencies and everything. And you ask them, what are you looking for? You know what they're looking for? They're looking for any kind of a pattern, any kind of a, a, of a signal that there might be intelligence behind the radio frequencies, a dash, dash, dot, dash, dash, dot, or a dash, dot, dash, dot, dash, dot, or any, any kind of a frequency or a pattern that might indicate design looking out into the night sky saying, we will know when we're being communicated with by extraterrestrial intelligence when we see patterns of design. Never stopping long enough to look at the simplest celled organism, even on the face of our own globe or our own solar system, and saying, that is evidence of design. And if you say to them, even the simplest cell is evidence of design, what will they say? No, that's the product of random chance and natural processes, all working together over the course of millions of years. That's not design. You know what we're looking for? We're looking for the dash, dash, dot that comes from the far reaches of the galaxy. Friends, that is intellectual blindness. How can they do that? You say that's insane. It's absolutely insane because they're intellectually blind. Willful intellectual blindness. Not only a moral blindness, not only an intellectual blindness, but friends, fallen man is also spiritually blind, and this is the worst part. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. It's a supernatural blindness. And Satan, who in that passage is called the God of this world, has put blinders over the eyes of those who do not believe. They are blinded spiritually, supernaturally, so that they can sit in an assembly and hear the gospel week after week after week, 
or hear it on the news or read it in print, and when the gospel is presented, ho-hum, they don't see the glory of it, they don't see the drive of it, they don't see the love of God in it, they don't see anything that to them is is pleasing or drawing. They don't love it the way we do. Why is that? Because they're spiritually blind. You ever wonder why somebody can be so prone to reject truth and love error? Seen it in people time and time again. Working with a friend who, well, I should say I have a friend who's building a house. One of the guys that he has contracted with to build this house um, believes that we were planted here by aliens and that aliens continue to visit us from time to time and, and that the Bible's a book of errors and that instead we have to be able to channel these aliens and get on board. I'm not making this up, friends. This is, I see some of you shaking your heads going, yeah, you're making this up. No, I'm not. There are really people who believe these things. That the pyramids were built by aliens and that there is a leader of this group who's who's has the ability to channel these aliens and communicate with them and he gives them messages from the aliens through this leader and gives it to all of his followers and he has books on this and pamphlets and he's been talking to my friend about that and my friend asked me what I think about it and it gives me an opportunity to share the gospel what a bizarre belief you say is that. How can anybody believe something so silly, so ludicrous, so insane? Friends, it is because they are spiritually blind. And you give them the truth and they can't see it. You give them error and they gobble it up. They love it. Why? They will choose error over truth 90, 100% of the time without the grace of God. And you know why that is? Because they're blind. Paul says, I'm sending you to the Jews and to the Gentiles so that you would open their eyes. Open their eyes so that they can see, because mankind is blind. Now let me share something with you. Friends, this opening of the eyes, this changing from from darkness to light and the ability to see is something that God does. You can't do this. You cannot in and of yourself. It is not Paul who is going to open people's eyes. It's not Paul who is going to heal people. This is something that the Gospel does. This is something that the message itself does. It turns people from their sin and it opens their eyes. It is the Spirit of God who sovereignly takes the Gospel message and He empowers it and He energizes it and He applies it to the heart of people so that their eyes will be opened. You and I can't do that work. You can never argue anyone intellectually into the kingdom. My friend asked me, would you like to talk to this guy? I can set up a meeting. You, can, you, you need to talk to him about his alien thing and maybe you could tell him about what you believe. And I said, it's pearls before swine. It's a waste of time. He's not going to accept that. You know why? I can't change his mind on that. That doesn't mean that I wouldn't if I were given the opportunity. That doesn't mean that I wouldn't seek to engage him or explain things to him or talk it over with him. But friends, you're never going to intellectually argue anyone into the kingdom of God. Do you think Saul of Tarsus was argued intellectually into the kingdom of God? Do you think anybody engaged him in an intellectual argument and convinced him of the truth of Christianity? It's not how it happened, was it? He wasn't converted during some apologetic program. He wasn't converted during somebody sharing the gospel with him and engaging him. He had heard Peter and John. He had heard Stephen give an exposition of the Old Testament and say, you just like your father, stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart, and you resist God today the same way that your fathers did. And then Paul led the crowd out to stone Stephen. He heard all the intellectual arguments. He had heard the Gospel before. But he was morally blinded to his own self-righteousness and his own, his own depravity before God. He was intellectually blinded and would not submit to the truth of Christ. And he was spiritually blinded by the God of this age who kept him from seeing the light of the glory of the Gospel of Christ. Matthew Henry says Christ opens the heart by opening the eyes. Did you catch that? 
Christ opens the heart by opening the eyes. And that is what the message of the gospel does to us. It comes to us, it comes to us in the power of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And the blinders are removed and the eyes are open and we get a change of illumination. The second fundamental change that the gospel brings, not only a change of illumination, but a change in direction. To open their eyes so that they might, what? Turn. Turn. You notice the connection between those two things? Your eyes have to be open before you can turn. Do you understand that? It doesn't do you any good to turn from darkness to darkness. It doesn't turn, do you any good to turn from Satan to Satan. You have to turn from idols to serve the living and true God. And before you can turn, your eyes have to be open. Has to come a point where in our hearts and in our eyes the lights come on and we all of a sudden see darkness and we see light, we see truth, we see error, we see idols, we see God, and they're in contrast to each other and we turn from the one to the other. We have to turn. Our eyes have to be open so that we can turn. Before you came to Christ, you were only heading in one direction. Now you may have taken a dozen different paths. You may have tried Hinduism, you may have tried Buddhism, you may have tried Mormonism, you may have tried Roman Catholicism, you may have tried atheism and agnosticism, you may have been baptized 15 different times in 15 different religions, you may have tried every philosophy and every thought pattern and system underneath the sun. No matter how many paths you took, they were all leading in the same direction. It was turning from darkness to darkness to darkness to darkness. And no matter what path you took, no matter what road you took, it led you to damnation and to destruction until the light came on, right? Then, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. It's called repentance. We've talked about repentance in other contexts in the book of Acts. Repentance is a change of mind about sin and a change of heart about sin that manifests itself in a change of direction and pattern and behavior from sin to righteousness, from unholiness to holiness, from wickedness to righteousness and holiness, and from idols to serve the living and true God. It is a change in direction that is the result of a change in the mind and in the heart. And can you be saved without repentance? Can you hold on to your sin and live in your sin and love your sin and cling to your sin and walk in your sin and yet be saved? You cannot. You must repent to be saved. Acts chapter 2, when the crowd asked Peter, what must we do? He said what? Repent. Paul said in Acts chapter 17, God has looked over the times of ignorance in times past but now He commands all men everywhere to repent. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul was describing his gospel to the Ephesian elders, he said, I go and I proclaim boldly to both Jews and Greeks repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have to go together. Saving faith is always accompanied by a repentance from sin. And a true repentance from sin is always accompanied by true believing faith. So that you cannot be saved by just one of those. It's not repentance alone and it is not faith alone because true, genuine, saving repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin and they come together. And you must repent to be saved because Jesus Christ will not save you from sin that you will not forsake. He won't do it. You cannot say, well, I'm born again and I have Jesus in my life and I'm trusting in Christ and I have salvation and I'm a child of God but I'm walking in darkness and I'm walking in sin. The person who says that is a liar. You must turn from your idols to serve the living and the true God and there has to be a genuine spirit-wrought repentance in the heart and a change of mind for an individual to be saved. It is absolutely essential. Now here's the curious thing about repentance. Repentance is a two-sided coin. On the one side is this. You absolutely must repent. You cannot be saved apart from repentance. You have to turn from your sin. 
that is something that you must do. It is something that, that you must in, you must turn. You have to turn. You, you have to forsake your sin and give it up. It is something that you do. But the other side of the coin is that repentance is also spoken of in Scripture as something that is granted to you by God to do and a work of grace in your heart. So it is both. In Acts chapter 3, Peter said, To you first God has raised up His servant and sent Him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Peter said, this is the blessing of God, that Jesus Christ turns you from your wicked ways. Who is it that does the repenting? It's me who does the repenting. But it's Christ who turns me from my wicked ways. Acts chapter 5. He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as Prince and Savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. It is something that God grants. Is it something I do or is it something that God does? It's both. God grants it. It's the work of the Spirit of God. He leads you to repentance. But yet you must repent. Acts chapter 11, the Apostle said to the Gentiles, well then, God has also granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. So is it something that I do and I must do? and I'm held responsible to do, and I am commanded to do? Absolutely. Is it a work of God in the heart of people whereby He leads them to repentance, He grants them repentance, and the Spirit of God brings them to the point of repentance? Yeah, it is both. It is both. You have to do it, and it is the work of God. That is why when I pray for an unsaved person, you know what I pray for? That God would grant them repentance and turn them from their wicked ways so that they might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Because they have to do that. And we have to pray that the Spirit of God will do that. The doctrine of repentance in Scripture is to me just like the doctrine of election. Absolutely mysterious, absolutely wonderful, and absolute testimony to the grace of God. And it's something that I could study and think about for hours and hours on end without ever without ever really fully plumbing it. It's just so beautiful. And how marvelous is the grace of God and that work of the Spirit of God that He reaches out and He turns us from our sin and then calls on us to repent, and that we do. It brings not only a change of illumination, but also a change of direction. And since repentance is a gift, friends, let me remind you of something. Boasting is excluded. Understand that? You can't sit there and pound your chest and say, I repented and my neighbor didn't. That's the difference between us. Oh, really? If you think that you picked your face up out of the mud and you got up out of your sin, and you set yourself free, and you changed your own mind, and you left your sin and forsook it on your own power, you were a fool and know nothing of grace. You can't even appreciate grace. That wasn't entirely your work. It was something that you did, but it was something that the Spirit of God did in your heart who led you and granted you into repentance. A change of illumination, a change in direction. Third, a change of location. Look at the next thing that Paul says. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God. Now there's obviously a parallel thought there between darkness and light and the dominion of Satan and God. There are two parallel ideas, and each one sort of emphasizes a different thing. So let's take them separately. First, that they may turn from darkness to light. Now that's a change of direction, is it not? In one instance you're heading towards darkness, and in another instance you're heading into the light. But this also speaks something powerful about the blind men that we talked about earlier, and that is that they dwell in what? Darkness. Now, if you ask a blind person, do you live in darkness, what will they say? If you ask a blind person, is it light outside or dark outside, what would they say? It's all darkness to them. Do they know the difference between light and dark? If you take a spiritually blind person and say, do you live in darkness, what do you think they would say? 
They would say, darkness? I don't live in darkness. It's not dark to me. Nothing spiritually dark. We live on the brink of some of the greatest technological advances in human history. We live on the brink of some of the greatest knowledge that men have ever discovered. We are smarter today having gone through the Renaissance and having gone through the Industrial Revolution and now we live in the Internet age and I can carry this little thing on my hip and open it up. I can talk to anybody anywhere in the world. I can put my food in a little box, hit a couple of buttons and it's hot just like that. I can boil water instantly. I turn on a television and I can see images from all over the world. This is the greatest age of intellectual light that the world has ever seen. And furthermore, we don't have spiritual darkness. Oh no, we have been delivered from all the puritanical, social and spiritual mores and taboos and traditions that held us down for so long. We can express all of our moral inclinations, whatever they may be, and all of our alternative lifestyles, whatever they may be. And we can do so without the guilt that you right-wing, bigoted, religious fundamentalists impose upon us. We live in an age of wonderful intellectual enlightenment. We live in an age of moral enlightenment when we don't judge other people for how they live. And beyond all of that, we live in a time of great spiritual enlightenment because we all know that all roads lead to God. And it doesn't matter what roads you're on, you're going to get to the same place. And all of us will get there. And God loves everybody. And, and everybody is all one. And we're all God. And God is all of us. Oh, this is the greatest period of light that the world has ever seen. That's what you would hear. But you know what? Blind people can't perceive darkness, can they? You ask them, do you live in darkness? What darkness? This is the greatest light we've ever known. And yet it's the greatest darkness that they could ever possibly imagine that they live in. John chapter 1 says that Jesus was the light of men and He came into the world and the world did not receive Him. John chapter 3, Jesus used the analogy of light and He said, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and he does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You know what the judgment upon men is? That they see the light and they reject the light. Or that the light has come and loving darkness, they love the darkness and they will not come to the light. They cannot come to the light because they're not able to do so. They're spiritually blind and dead in their trespasses and sins. And they're not going to turn from it. They're not going to embrace the light. But oh, the transformation that has been wrought in the heart of a child of God. That when the Gospel came, it not only brought a change in illumination so that we can see the light and love the light, but it also brought a change in direction so that we may turn from darkness to light. And now we turn from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, You once were darkness, but now you are children of light. Therefore, walk as children of light. 1 Peter chapter 2 says that we are to sing the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, We give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. It's the work of God that did that. Taking us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. That's a change in location. We no longer dwell in darkness, friends. Having received a change in our illumination, been given a change in direction through repentance and the grace of God, we now dwell in the sphere of light. So that a Christian who is a child of light, who walks in darkness, is a contradiction in terms. It's just that's why we're called to holiness. That's why we're called to live lives of light. Because we dwell in the light now. Change in illumination, change in direction, change in location. Look at the fourth and final fundamental change that the Gospel brings. A change in dominion. 
Verse 18 again, from the darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. There is a kingdom of darkness that is ruled over by the prince of darkness. His subjects are the children of darkness and all they see is darkness and all they do is darkness and all they're capable of is darkness and they're spiritually blind and their lives are characterized by moral, intellectual, and spiritual blindness and darkness. It is a very dark world that we live in, is it not? Because the whole world lies under the sway of that wicked one who is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. He is the one who is the God of this age and the God of this world who has blinded all of his subjects. And every man who is born today, every individual who is born today is born into the kingdom of darkness. Into this realm of darkness. And under the dominion of Satan. But he has transferred us from darkness to light. And from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of God. So now we are in a kingdom of light. And the God who is our God of light, in whom is no darkness at all, who dwells in light unapproachable, calls us His children of light and calls us to walk in the light. Do you see the contrast there? Do you notice that there's no kingdom of darkness, kingdom of dawn or grayness, and then a kingdom of light? Do you notice that there's no middle ground? Do you notice that this transfer is utterly complete and that there are two totally opposite extremes, from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God? The word dominion there means rule, Authority, jurisdiction, power. It carries the idea of being somebody's subject. Friends, that's what you were before you were saved. You realize that? You were a subject of Satan. You were of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father, you did. And he was a rather exacting taskmaster, was he not? Do you remember those days? Remember when he barked out orders and you obeyed? Remember when he did his thing and you walked in lockstep with all the other sons of disobedience toward damnation and destruction? Do you remember what it was like to be a slave? Remember what it was like to be in blindness and darkness? Do you remember what it was before the light dawned and you had the change in illumination? And how your life was only characterized by darkness? Because your father, the devil, controlled you. You were his slave. Titus chapter 3 says we were enslaved to our lusts. Romans chapter 6 says we were slaves to sin. And we did Satan's bidding, and he was a very exacting taskmaster. Sometimes we read over words like this, dominion of Satan to God, and we forget to think back to what life was like before the grace came. You remember what life was like before grace came? Some of you, I fear, may have forgotten that. You can't remember what it was like to live in bondage. You've been free for so long, you were free so early in your life, that you don't even really believe that you were a subject of Satan. Oh, I was born into a Christian home. One of my greatest fears about my kids is that they get saved at such an early age that they really do not fully appreciate the depth of their own depravity and their wickedness. And I have to remind them over and over and over again just how wicked they would be without Jesus Christ and without the grace of God. Some of you have forgotten what it was like to live in bondage. And consequently, you've stopped thanking God for such a wonderful deliverance. Does a day go by that you do not say to Him, thank you for delivering me from darkness and transferring me into the kingdom of light, and delivering me from my servitude to the prince of darkness, and making me a servant of the Most High God. Do you ever thank God for that? And I fear that some of you are so arrogant that you would actually think that you have yourself to thank for this deliverance. I hope and pray there's not a single individual sitting in this room who honestly thinks in their mind, I did this. I did this. Just as spiritual men... Sorry, just as blind men do not in and of themselves by an act of their own will or an act of their own doing create in themselves sight, 
So spiritually blind men cannot, as an act of their own will or an act of their own power, create spiritual sight. You cannot do it. You're blind. And the gospel has to come, and the Lord has to give you light. And then the Lord has to turn you from your wicked ways and give you the gift of repentance and lead you to repentance so that you would repent. And then the Lord has to, at the same time, take you out of the kingdom of darkness and put you into the kingdom of light and then to break the chains of Satan and make you a servant of the Most High God. There is no individual who can say, I turned, I gave myself sight, I set myself free from my exacting taskmaster, and I walked away from the darkness, and I brought myself into the kingdom of light. You thank God for that deliverance? Friends, the gospel message is brought to you. A change of illumination, a change of direction, a change of location, a change of dominion. Isn't that a wonderful thing? It has changed what we see. It has changed where we're going. It changes where we live. And it changes who we serve. And who our master is. And who controls us. And here's what I want you to understand, friends. All of this is the work of God. All of it is the work of God. Colossians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son. We didn't rescue ourselves. We didn't pursue it ourselves. We didn't do this work ourselves. James chapter 1 says, He, in the exercise of His will, brought us forth by the word of truth. 1 Peter chapter 1, He caused us to be born again to a living hope. And Titus chapter 3 verse 5, He saved us. We are the subjects of it. He is the object of praise. So to Him goes all of the glory and all of the praise and boasting is done away with. And if you stand today in the kingdom of light, in the kingdom of Christ, able to see, having repented of your sin, all of it is because God has done that work for you and in you and through you. And it's all by His grace. Those are the four fundamental changes that have been brought by the gospel. And we didn't get to the last half of the verse. There are four fundamental blessings that are also brought by the gospel message. Forgiveness of sins, an inheritance, sanctification, and faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at those blessings next week. Let's pray. Our Father, as the psalmist says, we bless the name of our Most High and Holy God, the God of Israel, because He alone does wonderful things. Thank You for the wonder of grace and the wonder of salvation and the wonder of our deliverance. We can only stand before You and give You praise, glory, and honor, and thanks again for that change that has been wrought in our hearts and in our lives. We thank You that Christ has done this. We thank You for what the Gospel has brought to us. We thank You, God, that You are so gracious, so condescending, so loving. And we ask, God, that You would protect us from every form of spiritual arrogance that might for one moment think that we have ourselves to thank for any of this. It is all the work of grace. It is all Your work toward us. We thank You that You loved us. Thank You for saving us. And cause us again to appreciate just how deep we fell and just how deep Your grace reached to bring us out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.